TruthQuest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. To be like the Bereans who receive the Word of God with all joy, but search the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are true. We want to receive the Word of God, but if someone's teaching us something that's not true, then we don't want to believe it. Now, if you're new here and you would like to submit a question, you just got to write the word question down or put a Q in front of it, write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, and then add any references because we can pull them up and we can take a look at the references and read them in context. And a lot of times that's the key. You can ask questions about Christianity, the Bible, apologetics, uh, nuances in relationships and what God wants from us, how God wants us to live. Uh, Our first question today comes from one that was asked a while ago on on, on God testing us and the Bible saying that God doesn't tempt anyone. Then the question was, isn't testing a kind of temptation? Now, interestingly enough, as I started to sit down and do some research on where it says that God tests us, I had a hard time finding it in the New Testament. I found Old Testament passages that talked about God testing our hearts, but when you looked up the word, it was the word for testing metal. In other words, you heat up metal, it brings the dross to the top so the dross can be scraped away. So the testing in the Old Testament was a testing that would bring the impurities to the top. That's why God would test. Uh, And so in the New Testament, the Bible makes reference to us being tested a lot. In the book of James, it says, don't think it's strange when you encounter various trials. It says in James 1, rejoice um, when you encounter trials. Uh, Peter is the one who says, um, not to think it's strange when you face um, fiery trials. Uh, But it very rarely ever says, in fact, I've only found one place where it says that God is testing you. Now, if you are tested by God, which means that you are, you're put in the fire, uh, you are going through a struggle, you're facing a difficulty, and it is from God that he's testing you, and you end up, instead of being tested and the impurities come to the top, you end up being bitter and angry at God and hateful towards God, then has that test turned into a temptation? Let's take a look at a few passages and we'll ask that question and we'll see what we've got. So, first of all, this is the one that I found. This is the one passage in the New Testament that I found that has the word test for it, that doesn't use the word as an analogy for testing metal. A lot of the New Testament tab word for test is as in testing metal as well. But here is the word that the word that just means to test someone, that God tests the hearts. So this is 1 Thessalonians uh, four, uh, 2, 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests the hearts. So when we present the gospel, we're not to be concerned about people, but God who tests our hearts. Now, we have a uh, Psalm 66.10's Old Testament passage that tells us, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. That's what we find in the Old Testament. Most often, the word means that you are tested as a metal, which brings impurities to the top. Now, why are impurities brought to the top? So that they can be scraped off, so you can have a purer metal. 
Why would God allow testing in our lives? Why would God allow us to face difficulties and sufferings so that the impurities can come to the top? In uh, 1 Peter 6 and 7, and this is, by the way, right now, my favorite passage in the Bible, 1 Peter 1, 7. So this is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, which says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. These trials come from life in general. Life is difficult, princess. Life is hard. Uh, life, um, so there's just dip trials in life. Satan tempts us, sifts us like wheat. Remember that Satan had been asking to be able to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus said, and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And we know that Peter failed when he was sifted by Satan, but that he was restored. So, um, if for need be, you have encountered various trials. Notice the word need be there. We need trials in our lives. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes. When my faith is genuine, it's much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ. So, we need trials in our lives to test our faith that it can be precious. Now, God's desire is never to test us or allow us to be tested to bring us to temptation. Listen to what James 1, 12 and 13 says. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for whenever he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has, has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God himself tempt anyone. And this ties in to the question we had last week, our opening question, why would God make Satan? Why did God allow Satan or, or, or create Satan knowing that he would fall, knowing that he would come at us and have all these temptations? Because God doesn't tempt anyone. And so there was a tempter who God would allow to be able to tempt to be able to refine us and do a work inside of us. So, right? Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. So we're being approved by facing temptation. And so God is allowing it to happen for that purpose. Uh, it says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So whatever testing, whatever trials, whatever temptation, whatever difficulty God allows in your life, God is doing it for your ultimate good. Uh, God does not tempt us. And when he does test us, it's not a type of temptation. Uh, Warren Wearsby said that, difficulties make you better or bitter. So there could be a way any difficulty would turn into a temptation, but God's desire in any test that he gives us is to reveal to us the impurities in our lives so that we can remove them or pray that God would remove them. God uses trials for our good. Satan uses trials to try to bring us down. God wants us to be victorious and to always be victorious. So, I do not believe that the reference to God testing us contradicts the fact that God tempts no one. God doesn't tempt anyone. He's not tempting us by trying us. He's bringing the impurities to the top. And you say, well, that impurity is sin. So, when God tests us, the impurities come to the top. Not necessarily. It just is the struggles and the difficulties and the things that need to be worked out in our lives. And our faith 
is much more precious than gold when refined by the fire. So God wants our faith to be precious, as precious as gold, and to be refined by the fire. Uh, so I can see how someone would think that when they are being tested, that it could turn into a temptation. And I think the tests of God, if are handled wrongly by us, could turn into a temptation, but that's not God tempting us. That's God testing us. There's a difference between testing and tempting. The temptation comes because when the tempter comes, when the enemy distorts something, when our own desires are enticed, and that brings temptation into our lives. We sin when we are enticed by ourselves. God's not enticing us. God's not like the devil trying to tempt us to get us to fall. God would not do anything like that. God has a good desire when he tests us. The enemy, when he tempts us, wants to hurt us and destroy us, and they are not the same thing. All right, so thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Good to see you guys here today. Uh, Psychman, good to see you. You've got your first question today. Uh, Psychman says, I've been following John 6.23 for years. Now I feel like I've been neglecting our Savior. I almost exclusively interact with the Father other than, um, other than thanks and worship. Um, what, what's to do with Jesus? All right, well, let's take a look at John 16, 23. Um, well, let me get, um, yeah, let me get my Bible open here. And let's go to John 16, 23, and then I'll put it up on the screen for you. John 16, 23. All right, so I've been following John 16, 23 for years. I'm just going to go ahead. I'll, I'll still be able to see. Uh, your question here, but I want to put this other one up on the screen. All right, psych man. So here we go. Let's go ahead and put this on the screen. So it says, um, this is John 16, 23. Uh, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked me nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. All right, so you've been following that for years, meaning that you've been praying to the Father in the name of Jesus uh, when you've been asking for something. Uh, so feel like you've been neglecting our Savior in, in meaning Jesus, right? Um, almost exclusively interact with the Father uh, other than worship thanks. Um, what's to do with Jesus? Or how are we going to interact? Um, how should we interact with Jesus? So first of all, Asking in the name of the Father doesn't mean that you can't talk to the Holy Spirit or talk to Jesus. We can interact with them. We can talk with them. Um, we can worship them because they're God. Um, we can um, uh, anything. And, and, and look, we ask in the name of the Father. We ask the Father in the name of Jesus. I don't know that that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I can't say, Holy Spirit, come into my life. Um, technically, I'm going to be asking the Father in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit, but I don't know it doesn't mean that we can't have any kind of, um, any kind of a supplication at all to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. Um, I think we... When we, in being biblical, when we're asking for God, we ask in the name of Jesus and we ask the Father in the name of Jesus. Uh, and I don't think that that should affect your relationship with Christ. It, I hope it doesn't affect your relationship with Christ, like man. Um, 
we are we have a relationship with them all. Um, let me let me show you a passage. This is John 16. I'm just going to go to John 17, just one verse over. And here Jesus is praying. Let me put that on the screen for you. Here Jesus is praying. It says Jesus spoke these words, lifting up his eyes to heaven, and said, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may be glorified, may glorify you." as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing the only true God, meaning the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, or the only true God, meaning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the only true God whom you have sent. So he starts his prayer here uh, to the Father, and then has his conversation um, with him. So just because you don't ask the Son for something, you don't ask the Holy Spirit for something, doesn't mean you don't talk to the Holy Spirit, thank the Holy Spirit, worship the Holy Spirit, talk and thank and worship Jesus. Um, this is just technically the way that we are to interact. And the Bible says the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And along these lines, Jesus taught us, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All right, so um, hopefully that's been helpful. Psych man, uh, seems like you're on the right line. Um, I, I, I'm just thinking about my interaction uh, with, with Christ. When I get technical about asking things, I ask the Father in the name of Jesus, but I'm not gonna say that I don't ever ask Jesus about stuff or for stuff when I'm, when I'm having a, when I'm praying, when I'm seeking God, or when I cry out to the Lord for something, um, like I said, technically, when I go right down to a technical prayer, I'm asking God. Um, maybe I, I I wouldn't say that I'm doing anything that's wrong when I I say, um, Lord, I want to be closer to you. Um, help me work the things out of my life. So when I'm just talking to Jesus about those struggles and difficulties that we have, but we do want to, when we pray, pray to the Father in the name of Jesus because of what Jesus has said there. All right, thanks, Psych Man. A good, uh, good question, uh, good thing to be thinking through to evaluate our prayers and the kind of prayers that we have. Good stuff, I appreciate it. All right, so Jari has a question. Jari says, uh, why does it seem like children who grow up in church seem to walk away from God and they get older while those who grow atheist, grow up atheist are open to the gospel? Thanks. Uh, uh, it is, uh, is it too many rules? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question, Jari. Um, I think to some degree, and I'm talking as a pastor, I'm talking as a leader of a church, okay? A leader in the church. I think it, to, to some degree, it is our failure. Uh, Frank Turek says, they've been talked out of it. Why have they been talked out of it? They've never been talked into it. So when we approach our Sunday school, um, our youth groups, maybe even our college groups, we approach it with the assumption that they already believe in God, that they already know the evidences for God, maybe even preaching in churches, that you already know the evidence is for God. Uh, and so we're talking about having a relationship with them, walking with them, interacting with them, 
and we're, we never go over the to talk people into it. Why should you believe in God? Is God really true? Why should you believe in him? Why should you follow him? What's the evidence for the existence of God? And the Bible says that you should be ready to give an answer to the hope that is within you. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, give the, the, per child, the, the person who grew up in church has their first taste of the world. Um, they maybe walk away from Christ, live out in the world for a while, and maybe they feel guilty. I think maybe in the day that we live in, with the access of uh, PORN, then they get guilty. A lot, of, a lot of guys, I think, feel really guilty, and they feel that guilt is being pushed upon them instead of forgiveness. And um, so they end up struggling with it. I think as a, as a youth pastor, talking to the guys that I was ministering to, this is a lot of years ago now, there's a lot more access to things online today. But as a youth pastor talking to my kids back then, they all felt guilty about where they were. Uh, and we should feel guilty. We should be convinced but then there's the forgiveness that comes along with it. But I think the returning to the struggle and trying to walk in integrity has caused a lot of people to fall away, but they haven't, I think Frank Turk's right, they haven't been talked into it. We haven't given them the evidence for God so that they can defend their faith. And um, this is something that I'm really desiring to do uh, in our Sunday school, in our junior high, high school. Uh, I wanna go over the arguments for the existence of God, for living for him, uh, for what the Bible says, the, the trustworthiness of scripture, basically really get kids uh, involved in apologetics. And I like that Jay Warner Wallace, by the way, if you have children and you want to get them into apologetics, Jay Warner Wallace has a book um, called Cold Case Christianity for Kids. My wife ordered it. Um, so we can read it to our grandkids, um, but that's the idea. So I do think that Frank Turek is right. A lot of times they just leave because they haven't really been talked into it. And so they hit school, some professor challenges their faith and uses some fallacy um, like, you know, you, you just serve God because you don't want to go to hell. Well, why is that a fallacy? Because I'm not serving God because I'm afraid to go to hell. I'm serving God because I want a relationship with him because he's forgiven me of my sin, and I now have a relationship with Christ. So if I'm asked that question, you just serve God because you're afraid of going to hell, I, I'm gonna say, I serve God because I wanna know him, and I wanna walk with him. The fact that I was on my way to hell doesn't change if I, if I have a relationship with him, then I'm saved from it, but if I'm not, then I'm on my way. So you're already on your way. So these fallacies, kids have never been taught about these. And I think that's why we see a lot of kids that will walk away from God. Now, maybe also it's just that basic rebellion thing. You know, it's like kids, I, I grew up uh, in a church, but, but not a, a, a church that believed in, uh, never taught being born again, never taught receiving Christ and, and inviting him into your life, never taught about being a disciple or following him. It just, you go to church, you're okay. You believe that God exists, you're all right. And I ended up surrendering my life to Christ. And a lot of times people, kids will grow up in the church and then they'll seem to walk away. But remember, we have a promise or we have a promise or a proverb that says, 
Bring them up in the way of the Lord, and when they're old, they won't depart. So maybe they're going to go through all of this for a while, but I believe, well, the majority of them are going to come back because that's what a proverb is. A proverb is, I live my life this way, there's going to be the blessings and benefits that are there from it. And so if this isn't a promise, and I take it as a promise, but if it isn't a promise, it means the vast majority of those who walked away, who were brought up in the ways of the Lord, are going to, um, are going to return. All right? So that's, a, again, good, thoughtful question, Jari. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, good to see you. All right? Um, what do born Christians do um, when being surrounded by homeless drug addicts, uh, trespassers on your property? I am scared. Um, there's a lot of crime where I live. Of a, a lot of shootings daily. Huh. Um, okay, well, let me, um, this doesn't have a question in front of it, but Kim, I'm going to go ahead and bring this in here. What do born and, Christian, born and Christians do being surrounded by homeless, drug addiction, trespassers on your property? I'm scared. There's a lot of crime where I live. Only the um, a, a lot of street shootings daily. Um, Kim, I, I think you live right in the middle of a place that needs Jesus. And I would take the opportunities to look to be able to share. I know that you're scared, and but but God is taking care of you. God, you're his child. God's watching you. Now, we want to be wise. We want to walk through the world with wisdom. You don't want to put yourself into dangerous situations unless you're feeling led to really be able to share the gospel. But while you're in the situation that you're in right now, Kim, I would say that you look for opportunities to be able to shine in a dark place. And, 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 trust, and trust in God that he's going to be able to take care of you. Again, you don't want to be unwise. You don't want to put yourself in dangerous situations. Um, but homeless, drug addicts, trespassers uh, need Christ. Daily shoot, a lot of shootings daily. Um, I'm not quite exactly sure where you live, Kim, but I, you, you are a born-again Christian, and you have the truth that can set people free. And so I would look for opportunities to be able to share your faith. Okay? So, um, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we have another question from OB. OB says, um, if a group of Christians, faith believers, begin speaking in tongues, is it mandatory that there must be a Christian interpreter nearby to interpret the tongues they speak? Um, okay, so thank you, OB. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so... The Bible says, and let me see if I can find this really quick. I'll just take a second to look. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find the verse right away um, without taking some time to look at this. Um, um, yeah, let's, I mean, let me just take a look and, and work down this a little bit here. Uh, so this is 1 Corinthians 14, 26, okay? Um, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So, you ask um, if a group of Christian faith believers begin speaking in tongues. Is it mandatory there must be a Christian interpreter nearby? So, you don't say they're speaking in tongues all at the same time. So, let all things be done in order. Each one has a tongue. Let it be done for edification. So, it's for the edification of the body. Now, 
in verse, um, I'm, I'm going to come back here to, what verse is this? I'm going to come back to verse 26, but I want to go back um, to the very beginning of this chapter. OB, and it says, a pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in the tongues does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, if he speaks spirit, he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification. So if you're speaking in a tongue, you're edifying yourself, and it's you speaking to God. It's never a thus says the Lord. It's always worship and it's always praise. So if I go back to verse 26, where it says, let's see, yeah, verse 20, um, yeah, verse 26, okay, if I go back to verse 26, where it says, how then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, which would be an interpreter, or interpretation, has revelation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks a tongue, let there be two, at the most two or three. So there's a restriction put on it, which means everybody can't be praying in tongues at the same time, and at the most you have at a service is two or three. And each in turn, let them interpret. So yeah, in each, in, there needs to be an interpreter. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So that means you can pray quietly to yourself, but not disturbing the people around you in tongues if there's no interpreter. Let two or three uh, prophesy and speak and let the others judge. So yeah, I'm going to say right there it is that in, ver in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church. So yes, there, there needs to be an interpreter there. Uh, if they're not doing that, then they are, um, then they're not following what the scriptures say. Now, I remember talking to a gal who got upset at me because I said something during a service about it, about um, everybody not speaking at once because they're going to think you're out of your mind, which is in the same chapter. And she came up to me and I read that passage to her. And, and I said, and I got to the point where, point where it says, let him keep silent in church, right there in the middle. And I had her read that. So I said, but if there's no interpreter, and I said, but what does 28 say? But if there's no interpreter, then she said, let him keep silent in the church. And then she said to me this, that's why we all speak in tongues at the same time. It's like she was reading it, but not willing to say it. And so I went back to it again, tried to point it out again. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. So, and at the most two or three, and she just wouldn't agree. She would not uh, look at the scriptures and evaluate it. Now, what do you do when you've got someone who's looking at what the Bible says, but then denies what it says? And why would they do that? Because they want to hang on to it. Years ago, um, we had a pastoral meeting where we would meet once a week. And um, I stayed with one of the pastors afterwards. And this is when we just started the church. And I stayed with one of the pastors and we talked and I, I talked to him through some of the passages about the gifts because he was having some of the gifts being operated wrongly in his church. And he, and he said to me, I know you're right. I know what you're saying here is right and this is the way it's supposed to be operated. But if I tell my people that, they will leave. And I, and I thought, what a horrible place to be. That you can't teach the word of God as it is because you're afraid the people would leave. And I said, you might be surprised. You might, you might end up being surprised and maybe they'll leave, but other people will come who want to hear what the word of God is. 
um, our direction is not to men, but to God, right? We're not preaching to men, we're preaching for God, the things that God's told us to preach. And so we want to know what the, what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. All right, thank you, OV, uh, OB, I, I appreciate that and good to have you here. Uh, we have another question from uh, Pokey. Pokey says, question, is it true Abraham was born 1948 BC? If so, was that Yahweh plan to Israel's birth in 1948 AD? Um, <laughs> no one, I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> no one dink, <laughs> yeah. Um, or know what I'm think. Not quite sure what that is, Pokey. Um, so uh, Abraham was born 1948 BC. Um, so I guess if you take all of the genealogies in the Bible and back them up, maybe you're able to get to a certain date. The problem is that we don't know, Pokey, whether or not there are any gaps in the genealogies. So sometimes the genealogy will say, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And, and there's a, a, a generation left out. And we know that because we compare it to another generation that puts the dad in to the grandfather. So my grandkids are still my kids. Now, when we think of our son, we think of a son that is you know born not not my grandson but he's my son he's my grandson he's my son and we're not looking at our culture and how we interact with the word son but we're looking at the biblical culture and how they interact with the word son of and so my grandson is a son of robert now my direct son was 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 david my grandson is braxton but he's a son of and so we don't know if there's any gaps in there to come to a particular date. So I'm sorry, um, I've never heard this before, Pokey. So I'm not familiar with it. Um, I'm trying to think back to the day. Okay, so David lived around 1000 BC. Um, that's the beginning, basically, of the time of the kings. You go 400 years for the time of the judges, that's 1400. You go another 400 years for the children of Israel being in slavery, that's 1800. You go another, I don't know, 100 years. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's about where you would get, um, you would get to. I always think of Abraham being 3,500 years ago instead of 4,000 years ago, but that would almost be 4,000 years ago. Um, interesting, so I'm, I'm gonna take time to look more into this. Um, it, it may be that kind of thing where you get into an area and then you make it exact to try to make it more impressive. And yeah, I don't know that you could come down to an exact date. And I don't know why, why okay, so it would come to 1948, but just because something hits 1948 doesn't even mean that God was trying to say something to us about it, about them becoming, you know, a, a, uh, a nation in 1948. So I don't know what I think about a pokey. I'll look into it a little bit. Um, if you can, uh, let us know. Just say follow up and let us know where you got that information from. All right. If you would, pokey, I'd love to be able to take a look at it and see whether 
there's anything there that I'm missing. Okay, remember, um, I'm answering questions off the top of my head. I'm trying to think of things. So sometimes I'm not really remembering all of it or, or I'm not able to recall everything that are connected with it. All right. So uh, if you're visiting, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, if you're visiting here as well, but if you're joining us for the first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, you can ask a question about the Bible, about apologetics, prophecy, um, hard to understand passages in the Bible. Um, just write out your question, reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it through the comment section. We would love to be able to take a look at your question. All right. So, um, previous Q&A, YouTube. All right. So, just kind of reading through some of them here. here. Uh, Paul has a question. Uh, Paul says, uh, you mentioned Wednesday you do magic tricks. I like them very much, but um, gave watching that stuff up because I thought it was wrong. So, it's okay when it was wrong. And when is it okay? Thanks. Um, yeah, so m tricks, just like tricks, sleight of hand is just as, it's fine. I mean, there's nothing against that. It's not like magic, the dark arts. It's not like you're conjuring up a spell. You're actually doing a trick. And so um, one of them that I do is I will have one of the kids that will put a mark on a penny and then I'll put my hand in my pocket fiddle around like it's taken me a long time and then pull out a box that has rubber bands around it. And when they take that box out, there's another box inside of it that has rubber bands all around it. They take that out, there's a matchbook inside that has rubber bands all around it. They take that out, there's a pouch with a rubber band around the edge of the pouch. And when they open it up and they pull it out, it's their penny. It's got the mark on it that they put on, on their penny. And uh, that's one of the tricks that I do. It is a trick. It's not conjuring up, it's not a spell. Uh, it's it's not a trick and you can go down to any magic store and you can buy tricks and you can get a magic book and you can learn tricks. Uh, Penn and Teller, um, who are atheists by the way, but Penn and Teller will reveal what the tricks are sometimes and after you, you watch it and you think, how do they do that? And then you watch the, with the reveal trick, it's like, oh, okay. So yeah, Paul, um, magic tricks are okay. Nothing wrong with them, all right? Um, magic, conjuring spells, um, being part of Wiccan, uh, that kind of thing is bad, okay? So we're making a, we're making a distinction uh, between someone who does tricks and someone who practices doing spells, okay? So I have a question from Joe. Joe, good to see you. Joe says, curious if you've ever experienced an encounter with an angel. The Bible speaks of us unknowingly being visited. Uh, was curious. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I have. Um, I have at least one time where I've really wondered at the end of it, and um, I'll tell you. I was uh, me and my wife were on our way up to Lake Powell. Um, we had a timeshare there with um, some other families that we would do once a year and I had a boat that I would pull and we were on our way through Flagstaff and there was a truck that was by us that had some wood in the back like like firewood cut and we had been kind of like for miles that truck was beside us um, 
when all of a sudden we were coming into uh, uh, Flagstaff, the boat came unhitched and began, like I just saw it come unhitched, I saw it begin to swing back and forth behind us. Now there's like, like pine trees lining each side of the road. And as I slow down, the, the boat gets more and more violent. It's pulling against, we had cables on there, not chains, but it was pulling against the cables on one side, then flop and go back to the other side. So the boat was flying back and forth and back and forth. And, and Kathy was with me and I said, Jesus, help us. I'm glad that's what I said. You know, when you're, when, when something like that happens and, um, the, we, we pulled over and it got more and more violent, pulled over the side and stopped. When we got out of the boat, I mean, out of the truck, we walked back to the boat and the, the hitch was directly underneath or above the, the part of the boat that you attached to the hitch. And there was nothing connecting the truck to the boat. The wires had been broken off. The bolt had scraped off where the cables were. And so the cables were disconnected. It just so happened that everything stopped perfectly in line. And when I'm back and I'm looking at it and I'm dumbfounded because how does this happen? How does a boat stop exactly where it would be at if it was up on the hitch only underneath it? And as I said that, the guy from that truck comes back and I think he had a marine tattoo on and he comes back and he says, you got a hitch? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, let's get it back up on the, on, on your truck. Or no, you got, you got a jack. He said, you got a jack. I said, yeah. He goes, let's get it back up on your truck. And so he helped me jack it back up on the truck and then um, we pulled, he pulled away and left and, and we pulled away and left. And, um, we went to a gas station where I got wires and bolts and kind of made a makeshift. It would have never have worked as well as the original. And, and we went on to Lake Powell, but I look back at that and I think, where did that guy come from? And what was that all about? Was that an angel unaware? That's just a, a time in my life. And I think about God's hand being on my life. And I know my wife, Kathy had said, that that event made her know that God was with us because that was a life-threatening event. We could have easily, that boat could have gone, that boat could have turned over, could have easily have drug us into the woods. We could have hit, hit trees. We could have rolled over and hit trees. Uh, it could have been very bad. And um, I, I do wonder about that. Um, now, as far as ever seeing an angel, uh, Joe, um, when I was a teenager, I'm going to say 16 years old or so, I went to a camp in Texas, um, teen camp in Texas. Uh, it was there that God did a couple of things for me. But I remember one of the kids there at the camp said that they'd seen an angel, that he was seven foot tall, that he had wings and he was muscular. And, and I remember praying, God, let me see an angel. I want to see an angel. Now, here's where I wanted to see an angel. At 16 years old, I was struggling in my faith. Is this really true? Am I, I want to follow the truth. Is this really what God wants? And if I see an angel, I know that things will be true. <clears throat> and I felt like God said to me, you're never going to see an angel. Not for that reasons. So an angel, not in the sense of entertaining unaware, but in the sense of actually seeing one with wings and there. But what was really interesting is that at that meeting, we were singing and we were singing a song called Alleluia sometimes hallelujah, sometimes praise the Lord, sometimes gently singing in one accord. Let's take this feeling that we're feeling now outside these walls and let it ring. So I don't want to sing you the song, I'm just giving you the words of that song. 
and it was a very popular song back in the 70s. And I remember God touching my heart saying, you're going to pastor a church. This is not, I didn't hear vocally, just inside of me. You're going to pastor a church and one day you'll be singing this song in a church you're pastoring. I'm 16 years old. So fast forward now to the mid to late 80s. The church that I that we planted started with six people and now has a few hundred in it. And the worship leader pulls out that oldie, sometimes hallelujah, sometimes praise the Lord. And my mind went back to when I was 16 years old in 76, a decade earlier, and thought, here I am pastoring a church and we're singing this song to you. What an amazing thing that God would lay that on my heart and that that would come true. I see that as something supernatural. Seeing an angel wouldn't be supernatural, um, but um, I did have I did have that event in my life. Um, I also had a prophecy that was given that came true, and at, at some point, if you're interested, I can tell you what that prophecy was. Um, but it is interesting, and um, you know, so, so there are some things that have happened in my life that I just know that God's hand has been there. And um, those are a couple of them. Thank you for your question, Joe. Thank you for letting me share um, that story. It was one where I see God watching out for me. Now we have a question from Sharon. Sharon says, uh, in the millennium, when we are on earth with Nexus, will we have bodies or will we be, have spiritual bodies like angels? Thank you, Sharon. I appreciate that. Um, and by the way, I'm not sure what Nexus is. All right. So I don't know. Um, but when we are in the millennium, some of us, uh, the nation of Israel will be protected during the tribulation period and God will fulfill his promises with the Messiah sitting on the throne, ruling over Israel for that thousand years. So the earth will be restored and the, not the new heaven and new earth now, but the original earth and, and Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem over the city of David. Then at the end of the, th and, and, and the rest of us are going to be changed. We are going to either have died and be resurrected at the end of the millennium, or when the resurrection happens, there's going to be those who are alive and remain who are going to be changed. That's what we call the rapture. That's the being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's why when people say there is no, no rapture, it's like everybody believes in a rapture because wherever you have the resurrection at, there's some people who are alive. And those people have to be changed. And that's why Paul said, I tell you a mystery, we are not all going to sleep, but some will be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, but they are not going to, um, but um, he, he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, but we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, this corruptible will put on incorruptible. We're going to be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. This mortal will put on immortality. So by the time we get to the millennium, all the people that have been resurrected, uh, all the people who have lived for Christ will have been resurrected and will we'll be ruling and reigning with him in the millennium, both Jews and Gentiles. And those that survived the, the tribulation period are going to populate the earth with people who are living. So, Sharon, we, when you say we, um, will we have bodies? I'm taking it that you're not Jewish. I don't know, maybe you are, Sharon, but I'm taking it you're not. That if you are not, you're a Christian now, so you won't be in the tribulation period as part of the, the nation of Israel that's being protected by God. So you will not have a bodies like this. You'll have a glorified body. 
in the millennium. The only ones who are going to be populating the earth are the ones who survive the tribulation period. And since it says that the Antichrist is given power to overcome the saints, then I don't know that any saints that are not part of Israel will make it through to the end. Flesh will be rare upon the earth. It's possible, and maybe there will be, but we aren't told. And it certainly seems like for three and a half years, you got to have the mark of the beast to buy and sell. The enemy's given power over the saints. It seems like they're all at that point martyred. That's what it seems like. So, yeah, you will not have a physical body, but you have your new resurrected body, um, uncorruptible and immortal. All right. Thank you, Sharon. I, I appreciate that. Fact check these hands. Good to see you. Fact check these hands has a question. Says, uh, I've noticed many sound Bible teachers are starting to call each other out on non-salvific uh, issues and or take them out of context. It's growing exponentially. Is it uh, predicted in scripture? Okay, I've noticed many sound Bible teachers are starting to call each other out on non-salvation issues, which is what salvific means, um, or take them out of context. Um, I can't think of any passage that would say where Bible teachers would become more sound in the last days. But I've got to say this, though. I agree with you. Um, there are a lot of things that are being corrected now in several ways. Let me go ahead and, and, and put this down. I can still see your question there. Fact check these hands. Um, I, I think of um, Sean McDowell did his thesis for his PhD on the death of, of the apostles. And he pointed out that there had been a lot of exaggerations about their death. And he did that to bring it to the point so that we would get those exaggerations out of there. Because exaggerating something is bad when you're preaching. You don't want to exaggerate. And then Peter Geary, who wrote um, his thesis on the evidence of the manuscripts, he's a, a manuscript, um, uh, what, what's the right word to describe him? He's, um, I guess he's a New Testament theologian to study, that specializes in manuscripts. Um, but he wrote his on the exaggeration that Christians will do on manuscripts. And, and, and saying, pointing out that there's nothing wrong with what the truth is, what the evidence is. So stop stretching the truth and stop doing things like you say there are 58,000 manuscripts in the Greek manuscripts, but there are only, you know, a hundred, I don't know these numbers exactly, a hundred of, of uh, Homer. So we can trust the Bible a whole lot more. Well, what you've done is you've used a new number for the manuscripts, but you used an old number for Homer. So what you should do is say, and it's probably better just to round down, say there's around 5,000 Greek manuscripts, because that's impressive, and there are 364. Use the new number, or about 400, round up for Homer. Because even if you round up for Homer and you round down for the manuscripts of the Bible, you're, it's still impressive, and there's no reason to do it. And I think of myths that were passed along that I heard preachers say that, 
maybe even I said, or that other pastors said, only to find out that they weren't true. They were Christian myths, like the, the, um, that none of the early church fathers taught a pre-tribulation rapture. And that has been caught by one and then taught again and again and again. And I'm really glad now that there are some scholarly work being done that have gone back to show that a lot of church fathers talked about it. The main heart of Christianity went to all millennialism, that there was no millennium. They didn't take a literal millennium. So you didn't have a lot of people writing about it because they just didn't take it that way. They, they made everything to them was a metaphor. But you certainly had people writing about it. And it's just a Christian myth to say it isn't. Or that Margaret MacDonald, her vision was where Darby got the, the um, pre-rapture idea from. When her vision is not even about that. Um, or people up in uh, uh, the Russians were drilling into the ground. And they drilled a hole so deep they heard screams from hell that were in it. And then I heard pastors repeat that. And it wasn't true. Um, I can't think of any more slighter things that I heard over the years only to find out that it wasn't true or it came out of context. I think God may be doing something. Um, fact check these hands. I know this. I know I'm a lot more careful now than I used to be on purpose. I just feel convicted that I want to make sure I represent everything correctly. And if I've heard something, I go looking for evidence. And if I can't find evidence, like today, um, when, I, when we, our first question today was about testing, and I started looking in the, in the New Testament, and I couldn't find any place where it said that God tested. And I kept looking. And I spent another hour looking through it, and I finally found one. And I could have easily have gotten on here after looking for 20 minutes and said, the New Testament doesn't say that God tests us. But I only found one that says that he does. But I hadn't found it. So I know I want to be that way. And, and I think that that is, I think it's growing. And I, and I think that the, the heart of some to say, stop using things out of context. Stop using things just because they sound good. Stop using things just because you heard another guy say it. Do your homework and make sure. I don't think that there's anything that would um, predict this in Scripture happening in the last days or anything. But I'm really glad that we're going down that road. And... Um, you know, especially for the kind of preaching, fact check these hands, that I like to do. So I like to do um, very, get to the point, let's break the passage down, let's get into scripture kind of preaching, rather than trying to give a polished message. And I want it to be as polished as it can be, but there are those preachers who are just very good at, at giving a polished message, and I just want to get into those scriptures and, and di dive in. And that's what I want to hear, and that's why I want to be that kind of pastor. Because when I'm going, when I'm looking at a passage, I want to get into it. I want to know, what does this passage say? That's what's important to me. So I love that there are those that are calling out others on using things out of context and getting back into context. I don't think it's, I don't know that it's predicted. I can't think of anything um, of where it says that. All right. So um, I appreciate that though. Fact check these hands. Good stuff and uh, good question. So let me just take a look here and see. Um, that's the question had to understand why Adam and Eve had to cover up. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, Jari, what you're saying there. Uh, so maybe you can ask it. So we have a question from TC1. Um, TC says, and TC, good to see you. 
any reason why the commander of the officials assigned new names to the four youth of Daniel, 1 through 7. Um, I don't, they, they wanted Babylonian names. So I think here, they're bringing foreigners in and they have their names in Hebrew and I can't remember what they were, but the Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it gives the Hebrew names that they had that they were changed to. But I think that they were conquerors and they were bringing people in. They were bringing people in that they were bringing the best and the brightest from the areas that they conquered. And I don't think that they wanted other languages, uh, other names being called. I think they wanted to give them their own names. I think probably it was psychological. Strip them of their Hebrew names. Let them know that they're Babylonian. You guys are wise men here. You've been brought in. You're being trained as wise men. That's what I think. Um, I, I don't know if the Bible says any reason why their names are changed, but I just think they always have, you know, they, they want to take their names away. They don't want to be calling them Hebrew names or Assyrian names or, you know, anything else but Babylonian names. So they give them Babylonian names, plus take away their identity. That's kind of what I think. Um, and I don't know that the Bible really says why they did it, but that's what I think. All right. Um, let's see. So I'm not sure what that is. Um, all right. Let me see. Let's see if there's another question. I'm stopping and pausing. I'm interested in the, the comment section. Uh, someday we'll have a guest speaker and I can just kind of be in the comments uh, with you guys um, going through what you guys are talking about in the comments section. All right. So, um, looks like we have a conversation about the gift of tongues going on. Um, maybe whether or not they passed away. Uh, I'm not sure. All right. So, uh, we have a follow-up from Jari. Jari says, uh, follow-up. If we don't know how old the earth uh, really is, do you know what year exactly we are in? Uh, were the 80s really the 80s or just a thought? The calendar is a man-made invention. Right. So, you know, you got 90, you got the 80s because it's the 1880s from the year zero, which was a, a date manufactured for the birth of Jesus. Most scholars believe he was born before that time, maybe as far as 4 uh, BC. That was actually the birth of Christ. Um, but it was around Christ that they came up with that to be able to say it. Um, there are those who believe that the earth is, you know, five, basically 5,000 uh, years old. Um, I... Um, I, I honestly don't know. I lean towards young earth. Um, was there a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that would make the earth older? Um, was the creation of man after a recreation of the earth? Let me go ahead and show you this. Um, this is in Genesis. And by the way, I heard Pastor Chuck, uh, who founded Calvary Chapel, I heard Pastor Chuck talking about this at times where he said he believed in it and other times where he said he didn't believe in it. So... I don't know um, really how I feel about this. Um, so it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'll tell you where I lean, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, God created the heavens and the earth and he did not create them formless and void. And um, let me just see if I can find that really quick. Um, 
he did not create them formless and void scripture. Let's see. Um, just seeing if I could find the Isaiah quote here. Um, yeah, I can't find... Maybe it's Jeremiah 4.23. All right, so, okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 4.23 really quick. A little bit of uh, study together and see if that's it. I didn't think it was Jeremiah, but it might be. Jeremiah 4.23. Behold, if the earth that needs indeed was without form and void. Nope, that's not it. That's not the passage I was looking for. All right, so um, let me just go back to Genesis, uh, and I want to give you, I want to read through this. All right, so there is a passage that says, God created the earth, and he did not create a formless and void. And here it says, in the beginning, God created the, the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So Isaiah says he created it, it wasn't form and void. Now, was Isaiah making a reference to God creating the earth, it being form and void, and then God went further? Or is there a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? which some people have put there. Now, I was told that originally it was put there when the Pilldown man had been found, which was a missing link in, in the fossil records and for, for from ape to human. But it was a, it was a hoax. It was the human skull and the jawbone of a, of a, I don't know, some kind of a monkey or orangutan or something like that. And they put it together. You can see the file marks on the teeth too, by the way. But they put it in, in, in books. And I don't know that that's the case. But um, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. So then God creates light and God saw that the light was good and God divided the light from the darkness and so on and so forth. But the idea is that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and that that is the reason, uh, that, that is why the earth could be I gotta get out of this. <laughs> I'm just going. I'm just talking and doing it. That why the Earth could be older than than what it actually is. Um, I I I lean towards young Earth. I I you know I just don't know. It's just not my area. And when I look at the passages that talk about day and night, um, in in the word yom, and is he trying to have a day and a night there? Um, I, I don't know. It's just an area that I find myself struggling with. And I think that that's okay. I think it's okay to, to be at a place where you don't know. I can tell you, I read a lot on both sides because I'm trying to really get that figured out and solidified, um, in my mind a little bit better. All right. We had, um, um, Dr. Jason Lyles at the church not that long ago, and he's a defender, a defender of the young earth theory. In fact, I have, sorry to disappear on here, but I have um, a book here, a little booklet. Actually, I've got like, well, let me just take a look at these here. Um, this is, yeah, this is how much. Um, so I've got a book here that I want to read um, that is by, by Jason Lyles, uh, Discovering the Truth. Um, I've got um, the ultimate proof of creation, resolving the origins debate. Um, so these are all books that I'm I'm looking to read. Uh, another one, uh, creation versus evolution, uh, which I strongly disbelieve uh, in evolution. 
and um, we could talk about why at, at another time. But anyway, this is an area that I'm interested in that I'm, I'm really looking into. All right, it just turned to five o'clock. Um, let me see if there's another question here that we may take a last one and uh, then close it up. If there's not, then we will wrap it up. We have a service uh, in about an hour. Uh, we're gonna be talking about um, the first time that the, the apostles are beaten for their faith. And we're gonna see their response. And um, there's some, pr some pretty good stuff here, all right? So we're gonna have the last question of the day. Um, and it's about preterism, which I always, when I pull in the last one with no time left, um, what's your view on uh, the preterist view of Revelation? I'm visiting a church that takes this view. I never heard of this before. Thanks, Nancy. I appreciate that. Um, your question. So, no, I do not believe in the preterist view. Um, there are partial preterism and full preterism, okay? Full preterism denies that Jesus is coming back again, okay? That's in our creeds and we would call full preterism heretical because of their denial that they already believed Jesus came back uh, in 70 AD when Jerusalem was taken. A, a partial preterism doesn't believe that, but they believe that they got to they take a couple of leaps. First of all, they believe the book of Revelation wasn't written in the 90s, but it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem and that it foretold the events that happened um, when Jerusalem was taken captive. And that when it talks about worldwide catastrophes, it's just talking about the point of view of what happened in Jerusalem. And they, it was like, to them, it was like the entire world was coming unglued. And, and stars were falling from the sky. And so um, I do know that they take a lot of stuff from Josephus and they try to tie that in. Um, I don't, this is a, oh, what's the right way to put this? Um, it's a minority view and for a reason, because when you get into it um, and, and also there's a lot of venom and I don't think there should be venom in the area of when, when we're brothers in Christ and we believe something different about the return of Jesus. So you believe in amillennialism and I believe in premillennial or you're preterist, partial preterist, and I believe in, in um, um, a literal millennium kingdom. I'm, I'm premillennial. Hey, we're brothers in Christ. So there shouldn't be a lot of venom, but there's, there seems to be. So um, I would do my homework on it. Um, I'm trying to think um, where you can get some information on it. Uh, Nancy, I think Mike Winger did a video on six different views of the Old Testament, if I'm, if I'm thinking right. And... Um, if you listen to that, he's got a section on preterism, and I think that he's got timestamps in there where you could just go to the timestamp and and look at that. So let me um, let me pull up YouTube here really quick and um, see if I can find this video um, from him. All right. Um, uh, let's see. All right. Sorry. I mean, just almost done. It's probably not going to pull it up. Let me just let me just see. Hey, look at that! It did. It pulled it up. Let me go ahead and show this to you. All right. Um, so this is this is the video. Let me just see. Okay, six end times views. All right, and uh, this is Mike Winger. 
uh, I really like him. He's a Calvary Chapel guy and has been doing videos on YouTube for a long time. So you can find a lot of videos, does a lot of really good research, and um, he does a section on amillennialism. Uh, he's got six different views that are in here. Preterism is one of them, and I think he's got timestamps. I wonder if I can uh, find that there's timestamps on here. Let me see if there is. No, that's just the comment section. Um, I don't know whether he's got timestamps or not, all right? But anyway, um, that is where you can go, Nancy, to find out some information about it. And I would go there and, and watch, um, I would go there and watch his section on preterism before you go to the church. Okay, maybe you're going tomorrow, but then you're at least informed. You know what it is, and you've got somebody that's outside of it, and he does a fair job with it. He, um, he doesn't he doesn't mock them, doesn't make fun of them. Um, he deals with it just as a brother in Christ. He talks about full preterism and why that is um, a heresy and partial preterism and why it's not a heresy. So, Nancy, I would go there and do that. So, hopefully, that will help. All right, I'm five minutes overdue. Um, I got to get out of here. We got a sermon, a service that starts at six o'clock. Again, we're in Acts chapter five. Um, we're going to see the disciples arrested and beaten and what their response is. The church is thriving, by the way. And persecution comes at the church because it's thriving so incredibly. All right, so really glad to spend this time with you guys here. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, delight in the Lord. The Bible says he'll give you the desires of your heart. If we delight in the world, we'll have desires for worldly things. But if we delight in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. So delight in the Lord. Walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, demonstrate your love towards one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God bless you guys. Love you. Uh, we will see you on Wednesday. We'll be back again, Lord willing, uh, with another Q&A. Um, I'll look to see if any other questions were submitted as I'm looking for the first question for our next Q&A. All right. God bless you guys. We will see you later on. I am